Mark Schwartz, who's had a number of experimental projects in and around Springfield, Illinois, and and other places that he'll tell us about. He's back in the day with Untoward Quartet, and uh, up to today with the End Times Trio, but also his uh, many uh, solo experimental projects, and some new ones, including Forest Saints for a couple of years now, and Demons on Wheels. We speak specifically about intragalactic radio by Forest Saints and the problems that he encountered trying to solve those problems of experimentation and then uh, other ideas for the future. (laughs) So, uh, did you have a chance to look over the questions? I did. The experimental questions? I certainly did, yes. Sure did. What'd you think of that? Oh, very interesting. Uh, very uh, thought-provoking questions. Yes, uh, tried to design them to be such. Yes, definitely. To be thought-provoking. Yeah. So, what what'd you come up with with the first for the first question? When did you become aware? First, become aware of experimental sound and music. Well. To the best. What's that? To the best of your recollection. Sure. You're not on trial, or. (laughs) Sure. Well, I would say that um, toward probably late eighties, I would say is um, definitely start making a break away from mainstream popular music into uh, more kind of subgenres and not not typical music. Um, when when was that you said? The late eighties, I would say. Ah, ah, yes. Um, and I was I was also kind of introduced to and and discovered yes, um, of course the old uh, prog rock band. And, ah, uh, they were one of the first ones that really started stretching my mind as far as. Um, different song structures, in, in particular long-form compositions. Um, so it certainly wasn't your your typical three-minute long song. Um, although, of course, their most popular song was Owner of a Lonely Heart, <laughs> which pretty much fit into the, the popular genre. But, um, yeah, definitely their, their kind of deeper deeper tracks and, of course, going back through their, their catalog. Um, you know, of course, they had... Uh, like Tales from Topographic Oceans, which was 
uh, a double album, but it was just four songs. So <laughs> and it was one one entire song per side on record. And, uh, you know, making 20-minute pieces of music was something totally different from, from what I, you know, had, had been accustomed to and, and was aware of. Right. Um, and then I, I went to music school uh, for my freshman year of college, uh, Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and had the good fortune of having, uh, his name is Dr. E. Michael Harrington, um, and I had him for two, two classes. I had him for a music theory class as well as an ethnomusicology class. And um the uh the different musical approaches that he introduced in both of those classes i would say was nothing short of life life changing for me um music theory um in particular of course was um you know introducing a lot of uh, of course your standard western um, you know, music composition um, information, uh, but then also a lot of the experimental music, which he was very much into. Um, he was actually the, the head of the um, experimental music ensemble um, at the school and just introduced all sorts of, of different forms of, of composition, um, you know, time signatures, uh, you know, serialism, Minimalism, it just just all sorts of different things, um, graphic scores and things like that, um, as well as uh, you know just uh, atonality and and things like that. So, um, well, so kind of started breaking um, some of the barriers as far as kind of that distinction between. Um, noise and sound or or music and noise i guess you could say um you know we'd be sitting in class and a car would honk its horn outside and you know so you know immediately the question would be well what chord was that that was being played <laughs> you know so you you know you started approaching uh you know just sounds in life as being as being musical and kind of that distinction between the two getting smaller and smaller um of course, with the ethnomusicology, of course, introduced, you know, exposing to music from all over the world, um, you know, which was amazing and fantastic. And um, again, just finding out how much there was outside of just typical, you know, Western music and Western scales and Western signatures and instrumentation and, and all of that. And just lots of deep discussion about um, you know, what actually constituted music um, and sound and just r really kind of emphasize the idea that that music is not a universal language. Um, uh, it's, it's a method that's used universally, but, but people can't understand necessarily you know, the language that's being spoken elsewhere. Um, you know, there'd be music that, uh, you know, might be played... Um, you know, at an, at an Egyptian funeral, for instance, that people would think was, you know, they wouldn't even think of it as being funeral music, for instance. Um, so it's not necessarily the, the same message that's conveyed. Um, huh. 
and yeah, of course, along with that too, he also introduced uh, you know just other artists who had incorporated other styles of, uh, of music into their music, other um, you know ethnic styles and things like that, and also uh, you know experimental musicians. Um, so from him is where I learned about the whole downtown avant-garde New York music scene, consisting uh, of people like you know Fred Frist and John Zorn and Tom Cora and. Um, everybody who's associated with that, and as well as kind of the the outer jazz, free jazz, um, it's where I learned about Ornette Coleman and you know Don Cherry and and things like that. So um, it was it was a very mind opening experience <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I bet sounds like yeah. well, obviously it would be. Yeah, and I've, uh, I mean, I've, I've thanked him numerous times since then. <laughs> I've been able to stay in contact with him, and uh, you know, I mean, it's, like I said, it's really set me on a totally different musical path than I had been on. Now, what was his name again? Doctor E. Michael Harrington. Ah, he's a uh, very much into. Uh, a lot of what he does now is copyright law, music copyright law. So he's he's been kind of expert witness in a lot of the major kind of uh, major cases um, that have been you know in the news about you know lawsuits about plagiarism and things like that, sampling and stuff like that that goes on. Huh? But yeah, he is a, a brilliant brilliant person. He his joke always was that. I guess he was roommates with Alan Menken in college. Uh, you know, of course, Alan Menken being a composer of like Beauty and the Beast, it's a Little Mermaid, and all the you know famous Disney tunes. And, and he always says, like, uh, you know, perhaps I should have followed the path of of writing music for kids' movies rather than compositions that you play with your with your posterior. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's very very entertaining and really intelligent character. Did you ever, uh, kind of a side note about playing with your posterior, uh-huh. uh, did you ever see Sun Ra on Saturday Night Live and Buck Henry introduced him? Oh, no, I haven't. Uh, it came on one time on syndication. I saw it and I actually grabbed my recorder, my VHS at the time and got it shot of it on the TV but uh, it was crazy I mean you know that's what Sun Ra was doing he was basically playing with his butt on the keyboard yeah, right. <laughs> just bouncing around on, on the keyboard when they got yeah. done they cut over to Buck Henry to go to a commercial and uh-huh. he was just like he was speechless didn't know what to do <laughs> he, was, he was confused and had this confused look on his face and then he got himself together and said oh uh, uh, we'll be right back <laughs> people were scared they got scared you know like, oh, like yeah. something's wrong you know like oh my god what's happening right what's going on right yeah. well I can't remember what I don't know if it's Ed Sullivan it's I, I have a hard time thinking that that's what it was but I mean I remember seeing watching the uh, uh, clip of um, Frank Zappa being on an old kind of variety talk show I mean it's black and white you know film so it was definitely a long time ago um and he he played a song on a bicycle. <laughs> I mean, using the bicycle as the instrument. 
And I just remember the host's just reaction was just pretty much dumbfounded. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. I remember seeing that. That's yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, they they were doing really, I mean, just super cool things, and like it was so much, so much new stuff. I I really, I really can't say that I was able to soak all of it in. I mean, I was just there was there was so much new stuff that I was introduced to when I went to music school. Um, you know, just on pretty much every every front musically, um, you know, and just kind of repeatedly having my mind blown. Um, you know, for them to talk about doing a piece of music with the new music ensemble there at the school, like they had a they had a fish tank up on the stage and they had a staff painted painted around it, um, and each person was assigned a fish. Each of the musicians on the stage was assigned a fish, and wherever that fish swam was what they played. You know, it's just it's things Whoa. like that that, that like. Like, you know, you always, you know, in Western music, you always think of everything as being fixed and, you know, all this stuff. And it's it's just, again, just pretty much every concept that I had that I had, had of music was just completely put to the test and <laughs> called into question. And, you know, wow. I mean, it's kind of that idea of, um, you know, you learn you learn the rules so that then you can go on to, like, break them all. <laughs> Exactly. That's that's what we always said in art school. You're right. Definitely. I should say art class. It wasn't an art school. But right. art. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I I ended up quitting music school after the first year because, um, you know, I again I was fortunate enough to have again you know Dr. Harrington is is one of my professors, uh, and then my private guitar teacher was also very very supportive of just my own musical pursuits. Um, but I would have to say that the program as a whole was, I mean, Nashville, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Nashville is really almost like the L.A. of the South, um, where, I mean, it is very commercially based. It's very studio musician based. Um, and their whole goal kind of was to just turn out studio musicians who could go in. I mean, basically, I mean, I think they were trying to be helpful in the sense that they wanted people to be able to survive by being a musician. Um, and, and, you know, to do that, of course, their, their focus was on being versatile and, you know, being able to go in to a recording session as a studio musician and be able to play whatever was asked of you in whatever style was asked of you. Um, with as little of your personality showing through, you know, as possible, but there, you know, supporting whatever artist was there, which was really kind of anti me. <laughs> you know, that's not how I am. So, <laughs> so it didn't it didn't sit well with me, you know, to go um, and be told on one hand not to write any music or perform any of my own music or work on anything of my own, you know, from a department head. You know, and then to go to a you know private guitar teacher and be like, you know, hey, keep on writing and bring whatever compositions you have here. <laughs> you know, and we'll you know don't don't let them ruin you <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> so, wow. So yeah, it was an uncomfortable it was an uncomfortable fix, and um, I I would have to say that actually once again there was so much to digest that I would say that once I left music school is actually when I probably really was able to start digesting it 
Interesting. So, and that probably can lead oh. into the next question. <laughs> I was just, I was just going to say that. Uh, yeah, doesn't that lead us there? Yeah. So that that means you that at that point, which was when. Um, would have had to have Roughly. been probably 1991. So from the 80s to the 90s, you internalized it and started doing your own experiments. Yeah, I mean, it's probably more so from like 89 to 91, <laughs> probably. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, you're, I mean, you're, you're there in the 80s and then you're starting to do your output in the 90s. Yeah, I was so, I was so burnt out. I mean, you know, Everybody and their dog in Nashville was a musician, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, you know, you'd go walk down Music Row and it'd just be one band after the other, um, you know, come, you know, that you'd hear coming out of the bars or whatever, you know, just you'd walk down the street and, you know, passing people with their drumsticks sticking out of their back pockets and stuff. It was just, you know, it was so much of just the identity there that it just got tiresome um, to me and plus, I said I had been introduced to so much other stuff that didn't fit into that. Um, that I mean, there was a period of time after that that I really, I just I put down music for a while, um, and huh. especially, especially when, when I was confronted with like the music of, of Fred Pritt and the experimental music scene, you know. Oh, I was actually just having this conversation with my son the other night, which was, you know, typically, you know, as a guitarist, when I would listen to somebody play something, um, you know, I could picture what they were doing, you know, in, you know, even in music school, you know, we would, we would have these, uh, you know, listening exercises where you'd listen to a certain recording and then they would ask you about the room that it was recorded in, you know? And so you'd be like, oh, you know, I think it was about this size. This is what the material was on the carpet. You know, there's a tile section over here. Um, you know, ceiling was probably this. You know, I mean, just by listening to the to the reverb qualities of, of the music. So, I mean, you're really listening to this, you know, specific, specific things. And same thing with, you know, people used to make the joke of, you know, hey, what color is the, uh, the guitar? You know, what the guy's playing. <laughs> Uh, you know, hear that by by listening to it. But you know, typically, <laughs> again, you know, you can, you can you know you can picture what somebody was playing. Um, but again, when I was you know finally, you know, when I when I finally took that leap, because again, it was so confrontational. You know, at the time, just musically, just really challenged so many of my concepts about music that it was like, okay, that's out there. Um, and it's interesting to think about, but I don't know if I could absorb that. And so it wasn't until I actually took the dive and was like, okay, I'm going to explore this myself. And I mean, I, I, I used my notes and resources from my classes that I had had, like pretty much as like lists of like listening lists, <laughs> like go explore these people and go do these things. I mean, so I really started diving into experimental music and, and ethnic music and things like that and, and, and listening to it on my own and trying to absorb it. And, you know, listening to Fred Frith, I could not picture what in the world he was doing when he was playing. 
<laughs> which, you know, to me was just mind-blowing, because it's like, I, I mean, I literally couldn't even conceive of, of how he could be conjuring the sounds of his instrument that he was. And, you know, and these were these were old recordings. I mean, so it's the stuff that was at the same, you know, and it's the stuff that had already been done and was been being done for, you know, a couple decades or whatever. So, I... I suddenly felt like my musical vocabulary was really small <laughs> compared to everything that was out there. Um, and, you know, it's it's like, it's kind of like being, you know, an English speaker and finding out that you only know, like, a fifth of the language, <laughs> you know? Or, you know, you're a painter and you've discovered that there are all these other colors that you had no idea existed. That's kind of how I felt musically. It's like there's there are these whole other languages, you know, palettes of, of sounds that that I could add to my really what suddenly seemed very limited, you know, musical vocabulary. So, you know, I, I quit. <laughs> I quit playing for a long time, um, you know, a year or so, and just listened and just absorbed and and. You know, when I, once I started feeling like I kind of was beginning to understand some of it, then I started the whole exploration process, which is, okay, like, let me see what, what sounds I can conquer. <laughs> you know, let's see, you know, what different approaches I can use. Um, you know, trying to, totally approaching my, the guitar, for instance, from a totally different point of view. Um, you know, no longer, you know, something that, that has six strings on it that you, that you play, you know, upright and get melodies out of, you know, it could be simply a, a microphone, <laughs> you know, um, you know, you could, you could lay it different ways, you, could, you know, when you're flat, you know, a lot of prepared music was one of the things that I was introduced to, just, you know, people putting screws in pianos and, you know, playing the insides of pianos and, you know, just altering instruments and, yeah. Harry Parks with the microtonality and all that sort of thing. So it's like, you know, what, what things can I do? What can I stick in the string of my guitar? <laughs> you know, uh, what can I apply to the strings to get different sounds? And just really, I mean, just really started exploring, um, you know, all those different sounds and, and adding different things to my vocabulary. And, you know, suddenly, suddenly, I guess what was considered pop music seemed extremely boring <laughs> and limited. <laughs> you know, that point. Of, of um, 
someone who uses a big word, they know the word, but they don't really use it in the right context. <laughs> so it sounds kind of funny. You know, they don't necessarily understand the meaning of it. I didn't want to go out there and start doing something until I felt comfortable, you know, using it. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it wasn't until later. And um, luckily, eventually, um, I ended up moving to Springfield in 94 um, and was lucky enough to, to get involved with uh, the Innovators New Music Series um, after I'd been doing just a bunch of stuff on my own, um, just extended the external recordings and things like that, was finally able to kind of make my way into that sort of the, the music scene as far as performing and, and actually having someone else other than myself hear, hear the music that I was making. Right, I remember the Innovators New Music Series. Yeah. That's funny, you, uh, a minute ago you mentioned Harry Parch. Uh-huh. And Christopher Brown from Random Touch mentioned him too. Oh, <laughs> That's cool. Well, with Innovators, I, that was where, uh, and you know, I, I was aware that obviously there's the whole thing about jazz and, and experimentation. Everyone knows that to some right. degree, even right. in popular knowledge, even if they've never heard any of it. Right. But they know that it exists and they give it, they, they say, well, jazz has these experimental roots where the experiment was like, we didn't really know what we were gonna play, so we were winging it. So we were right. experimenting in the moment with every note that we were playing. And as comes up in these interviews, we identify that there may be a number of different ways that something could be an experiment. As yeah. you, you're pointing out with it, as the next question deals with sound and music, you're still well within music talking about how it was merely an experiment culturally to leave what the music that was the norm that you grew up with and then branch out as you became more aware of this other stuff, not only that people were doing in the West, but like with long albums, but then what was happening with other cultures and other ways of looking at the staff and, and all of that right. even. And right. so that's all still, that's all still within the realm of music. So it's interesting to me how the experimental part can happen on any level Right. in this whole framework you know and right that's what's great about it and then so the innovators was to me uh it wasn't just jazz is from frank trumpeter you know that they had put that on and sure. and he introduced me to the knitting factory and and all these not just you know coltrane and all that but i mean these things that really actually you, i guess you really couldn't call it jazz sometimes it's, right <laughs> right on the show on the, on the show that this is the podcast spinoff of esoterica we played a lot of the innovator stuff and in fact i saw it as one of the major resources i had for uh esoteric music to be played on the show was right, that right and i loved it that it was like okay here's the quote-unquote jazz wing of the weird music you know? <laughs> right <laughs> right and i kept trying to think of the one band that uh, out of New York, it, it was a knitting factory band that played there, but I can't remember the name of it. But it wasn't really, it was more like a small orchestra. It wasn't uh -huh. really a jazz band. They right. weren't playing jazz, I mean, but it was just, it was almost like film music, but really exciting. And they had played oh, yeah. here in town, and he had brought them to town, and it was just amazing to watch. There were like five of us there. We right. always joked about that. There was like this amazing stuff going on on stage in front of us and but the real hard thing to believe was that there were just five of us standing there watching it this, right. how, could, how could this happen 
that something yeah. so monumental was taking place before <laughs> five people. Yeah, exactly. The, the band outnumbered us. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I remember, I mean, some of the shows that we would advertise, I mean, because, of course, we, you know, I mean, of course, we ended up, Rich Gilman Opowski, of course, ended up coming to, to Springfield from New York, and he actually discovered us because of the Interfaces New Music Series, just looking online. I mean, he knew he was coming to Springfield to take his, you know, position at, at University of Illinois at Springfield. And of course, you know, he's, you know, a free jazz drummer and he was looking to see if there was any possibility of anyone to do music with. Um, and just, you know, searching online and then found articles about the Innovators New Music Series, I guess, through Illinois Times and ended up contacting Frank as a result of that and just kind of, you know, heads up of like, hey, I'm, I'm moving to Springfield from New York. And I don't know if, if you've ever heard this story, but it's it's sort of comical because um, Frank I had for, formed Enford Quartet prior to, which kind of ended up dissolving uh, just because a lot of the people kind of ended up going off their own directions. Um, Joel Steisens, who was our drummer, ended up taking a, a teaching position at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. Um, and... And so he left, and we're just kind of like, you know, wow, you know, he was he was kind of like the known like free jazz type drummer um, back then, which is funny because I don't think he plays drums at all anymore. Um, but I remember distinctly having this conversation with Frank on the phone. I was actually standing; I'd driven up to the Chicago suburbs to go visit my parents, and I remember standing on their driveway as I pulled in. Frank had called, and I remember having this conversation just about how nice it would be to be able to put something together again musically and um and i remember distinctly saying you know it's almost like a drummer would have to drop out of the sky you know it's like they it's almost like somebody would have to come from somewhere else and and be here because i don't you know know what else we would do and i think within like a week frank had gotten contacted by rich he said hey i'm coming to town um so it's kind of a really funny foreshadowing um and of course, from the first time that the three of us played together, which was, man, what, like 17 years ago or something now, um, you know, it was pretty much just this really, you know, musical, you know, symbiotic relationship between the three of us. And, you know, it's so funny because I never thought that I would be able to do, once I, once I quit music school and kind of quit, I guess, popular music proper, um, I pretty much knew that it would never be a, a source of income for me, which I never really wanted it to be in the first place. Um, and I also kind of questioned whether or not I would ever even be able to perform any of it anywhere. Um, it's just, it's so funny. I mean, I do more music now, and I've done more music since music school than I ever did during or before. You know. So, yeah, I've certainly had, you know, the opportunities and, and it's really, of course, been super grateful that I haven't had to compromise kind of my own musical um, journey at all in order to be able to play out. So, it's been great. Well, so then what do you think about if you had to choose which camp your material would belong to more, the world of sound <laughs> world of music well i think definitely based on the different projects um you could argue for both i mean there are some that i think 
I, I choose to fit more within just kind of the normal bounds of music. Um, some of the projects I distinctly do trying to push the boundaries of music, um, and I would say that would definitely be like In Punch Trio um, and Four Saints. I mean, that's those are the projects where I'm, and, and my solo stuff. Um, and that's where I'm trying to push in a mile personal boundaries as well as just the boundaries of what exists out there as far as music goes. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are purposeful. I mean, it's, you know, probably, probably the most extreme, I would say, probably being like the uh, intergalactic uh, music, which is, yeah, I mean, I tried to, tried to imagine, um, you know, one of the Voyager shuttles picking up radio signals, you know, out in space in, you know, essentially alien radio. And so it wasn't just, you know, I, I remember how absolutely foreign non-Western music sounded to me originally. And it was trying to put that in the context of like, okay, what if we heard music from like actual other creatures, <laughs> you know? So I would do these experiments right. Mental experiments of like, okay, this could be like a non-humanoid, you know, entity. You know, it could be a slug. <laughs> you know, it could be, um, you know, data. You know, it could be, it could be a machine. It could be a robot. It could be, you know, I was just trying to. I was researching like exoplanets and kind of their conjectured um, surfaces and things, and you know, water water planets or you know just lava planets and it's like okay you know if creatures existed in these things what kind of music would they make and so i mean i was trying to do right and 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 how do we uh, examine the sound music differential with that too exactly. uh, what, what, would the music that you don't understand as a human being from planet earth Right. Be, would it be music or would it be sound? And then right. that forces us to have to ask, well, what? How do we define those two things anyway? <laughs> Obviously, I would say, and I didn't say this before when people brought it up, but to me, it's like Samsara and Nirvana. One exists inside the other. What you can't have one without the other, but you can have the other one without the one. Right. So like, right. All music is sound, but the sure. world of sound goes out. It extends farther even than music that goes out to like the sound of, you know, cars starting and I always say birds and, you know, fall into that category too, yeah. you know, but yeah. but that's closer to what we call music and I'm always fascinated with where the line gets so blurred that you so just blurred. can't say anymore, you can't say right. which it is and and that's why everybody always wants to say both and I think the, the best answer is probably going to be for most experimenters uh, both, because they are definitely going to be looking at both aspects of it. Because the, the again with Christopher Brown from Random Touch, he, his definition was I, I, I interpreted it as being kind of a broad definition, where a uh, more interpretive definition, whereas uh -huh. uh, not just based on you know are we using the Italian mathematics that we're using for our scale and everything, or, or he says, well, it's when you get to that point that it has it elicits an emotional reaction akin to the thing that makes you listen to it again. You know, right. like if you're the artist and you put 80% of your work aside and no one ever hears it uh, because not it's no good, and then like 20% is the stuff you want to release, say, then uh, you, you, you've got all that, that whole gambit of material. And, right. and it, it's... Uh, 
it's really kind of strange where depending on your point of view really your point of view really has a lot to do with it with how you would define all of that but yeah. that's what so I, kind of what your attention is you're too. someone you're someone too, well, he said it's it, it, it's a function of what someone uh likes enough that what speaks to you then it's music right. like like the general the muse you know right. Uh, right general term of it that that is music if if the sound of the car engine really turns you on then it's music to you and right. then it's see now that's interesting isn't it because then it's is yeah. it sound that's eroticized by the art is that sound then automatically music right well it yeah in in my like argument it's concrete you know as opposed sure. to sure sure yeah, my argument that that would be in, in the way that it was initially challenged too was with, you know, some of the just super super harsh experimental music, which is like, I mean, that's not pleasant. You know, you know, there are certain things that are not intended to be pleasant, and you know, people always make these kind of qualitative statements or 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 um, you know judgments actually on them of, you know, whether or not they have value in. You know, I guess the way that I've I've kind of interpreted it is like, yeah, we all like to feel happy and peaceful all the time, but that's not real life. You know, I mean, right. that's a super Value. negative, you know, Value. super negative emotions, sadness, sorrow. You know, those are unpleasant, but they're still part of life. You know, they're right. part of what brings the richness to life. And so it's like, you know, bands like Sonic Youth and stuff like that who started introducing, you know, noise elements into their music. I mean, so, you know, they might have some really beautiful passages but then they also have some that's you know what people consider noise and um you know and then you get into really harsh stuff that's like ooh that's like I can't I mean I, I remember like I mean there are times where I've been listening to music in the car and, and you know if I had passengers in the car like you know asking me to like pull over and stop so they could jump out <laughs> you know um and it's like it's like yeah it's harsh and it's it's unpleasant but it, it does a good job of being it, <laughs> you know? Like, right. I always say, like, stinky cheese does a really good job of being stinky. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. Right. And so unpleasant stuff, you know, is, is supposed to be unpleasant, and it should make you unpleasant and um, feel unpleasant. And um, and that's one of the things I had to really challenge myself, especially with, with uh, intergalactic music, was... Um, and I, again, I think this probably speaks to one of the, the later questions too. But it, like, I I almost had to go against what I thought what I felt like sounded good. Because it's like I was I was constructing it based on not not only Western but human ears. So it's like okay, so if this if this sounds good to me, is it still am I still trying to interpret what would sound good to a human? <laughs> you know as opposed to what might be pleasant for an alien, <laughs> you know, just in the same way that you think of, um, and again, it was every single concept that I could think of as far as like frequency range and durations and um, volumes and all that kind of stuff of, you know, you think of the soundscape that, that probably is going on, I'm sure is going on for like cats and dogs. I mean, they probably probably all kinds of noises you think here that we don't, right. obviously, we know. Right. Um, so, yeah, again, just even if it's not, you know, what's not pleasant to us might be really, really meaningful to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> 
still, isn't it? Well, yeah, and even beyond that, <laughs> and the one step kind of further than that even, <laughs> the actual transmission of the music, which is, you know, one of the things I remember us doing in ethnomusicology was, you know, you're talking about notating, um, you know, performances from people of non-Western musics, and to delineate between what was an intended sound, like what was an intended part to be part of the music and what was something that just happened, you know, these people that were going back and transcribing, you know, these, uh, you know, ethnomusicologists that, you know, made all these field recordings but then came back and tried to transcribe them. I mean, they were having to make these judgments upon, about, like, what part was actually considered part of the music and what just happened, you know, at the time and what was intended, you know, is, is also, like, what were flaws with the recording equipment? You know, was this, was the sound intended or not? So... You know, I even kind of took that concept of, you know, you're driving down the highway in your car and you're listening to radio stations, and of course, as you get further away, you know, it starts getting distorted or you get kind of that ring modulation or something going on. Like, if that's where you picked it up, like, you wouldn't know if that was an intended sound or not. Um, one of the other stories I really like to tell is that I, <laughs> I remember one time I was going out for some Mexican food. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I happened to be listening to the Blood Brothers, um, a new CD that I'd gotten, and wasn't really familiar with a lot of their work, and hadn't listened to this album yet because I'd just gotten it. And I remember this one part of this song was just like I was sitting there in the parking lot, waiting for the song to go over, because it got so like super distorted and really powerful. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, so I turned off the car, went in, and got my food, and was coming back out went to go start the car and my car wouldn't start like the battery was dead and so of course i got a new battery blah 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 you know went back and listened to the album later and i'm like man where's that like i couldn't find the part of that song that i thought was so cool and what i realized is like that my like it was distorting because the battery was dying <laughs> like and that, was, oh, yeah. that was a that was affecting the sound and like i had no idea that that's what was going on at the time um you know, so even thinking about those recordings, it's like, okay, so of the things that you even hear, like, with the intergalactic music, like, like you don't know. Like, if are you picking up, um, you know, a broadcast of, like, a meeting, you know, of, like, you know, these, these you know, these alien beings, you know, is this a conversation? Is it, like, a phone call? <laughs> you like, you don't know what it is. Um, and I, I remember reading... Um, this one ethnomusicologist he was studying, I can't remember what tribe it was, but they kept having to correct him constantly because he would call their conversation music and he would call their music conversation because, uh, because their conversation sounded more musical than their, than their, their music. Huh. And like, they kept having to tell him like, no, that's how we talk. Like, this is our conversation. This is us talking, but this over here is our music. And he, the two were totally reversed. <laughs> wow. And so it's it's that same sort of uh, concept of, like, like, I mean, there's no way that you can even conceive of, like, what role these sounds play, you know, what function they serve. Is it is it talking? Is it music? You know, is that even music, or else is it just the sound that these creatures were making, <laughs> you know? Like, right. Yeah. So, I mean, just, again, I it was. I mean, it was an ongoing exercise, I think, especially for that. Um, and I did that really to just kind of balance myself, too, of like, okay, I need to 
you know, I think I've expanded my bounds with music, but let's see if I can expand it even further, <laughs> you know. And so right. it's kind of my exercise in, in pushing myself to do that even more so. Wait, do we ever fail at these experiments then? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, again, I guess it depends on what you're... That's what you're, the last question. <laughs> yeah, we have, to, we have to grapple with the definitions once again. Yeah. What's the, failure, what's the success? And people yeah. have approached it different ways. Most people throw out money making right away because if oh. you're experimenting. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly right. Well, yeah, the, of course, the joke of free jazz is you know you play it for free. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I would say a failure would simply be when you didn't end up doing what you intended to do. You know, which would be kind of your own internal failure. Um, you know, it might sound fantastic to other people, you know, but to you, it's not what you intended to do. I think that's probably kind of how I would see it. Um, well, what about the happy accident, though? Well, yeah. It, yeah. And again, I mean, that's that's good. I mean, it's kind of funny because there are times when, for instance, like when Intime's Trio plays, and it's funny because we question... Like, a lot of it just comes back to how we felt about it. You know, like, if we felt like we were all in sync and, like, communicating and, you know, you just kind of, you know, the music rises above this other level. It's like you're having this three-way ongoing conversation and, you know, you don't even really realize that other people are sitting there listening and it's amazing. But it might have, to the people, might have sounded awful, <laughs> you know. You know, to them, it might have been totally unpleasant. You know, I don't know, but for us, it was fantastic. And there could be other times when we felt like, you know, felt really stiff or really felt like we weren't communicating or whatever. People might be like, oh, that was amazing. Like, that sounded great. So I think it's just kind of based on you, what's your qualifications of what what a success is, <laughs> you know, and what's, what's good. Um, sometimes, yeah, we don't feel that great about, about a performance, but then we'll go back and listen to a recording and be like, Man, like that was like that was pretty fantastic. Like we were happy with how that came out. Um, so I don't know. Like, I mean, there there were there were times where I tried, you know, I would try to do experiments, uh, musical experiments of things, and and again found myself falling back into structures, you know, things like that. It's like, you know, oh man, like you know, I'm trying to bust out of this and keep finding myself resorting back to just kind of my human Western, you know musical, you know, whatever. So, I mean, to me, that would be kind of a failure is where it's like, yeah, that's not, I didn't challenge myself or push myself far enough to to experiment with this. learning 
learning new things to break out of habits or what have you. Uh, you just always play one key or you know, you want to try to like do different, learn different things, different alternate tunings or whatever. Uh, right. Different instruments. And then it just kind of branches out from there. Then you have the other end of the spectrum where someone's actually like you did, trying to, sitting down and trying to come up with a piece of artwork that defies categorization on another level, that defies categorization not only of genre, but of what you would even, what you even, to reassess what you call music and then do something aside from that. For right, that to, right. for that to be your, your problem that you're solving, that's a real, uh, that's a, that's a, a, that boggles the mind, you know, but, but it shows how at some point all these things are always happening on some level for everyone. And then for some people, they just magnify these certain things and other people, uh, they're not magnifying. It's sort of like learning the rules and then breaking them, you know, it's right, a, right. this whole process of pushing and pulling. So to some level, all musicians are experimenters and at some level are all experimenters musicians you know see that's that's where I'm trying right. to get to. I'm trying to get to an answer with these this, this journey that we're going on with this podcast to try to figure out you know does it work both ways you know right. because there's a lot of stuff especially lately that I've been listening to and and that's a funny thing you've actually touched that area where people are doing just that they're trying to break all the, the preconceived conventions and maybe even would be, they seem like the type of people, artists, that would be offended if you called their stuff music. <laughs> right, right. I, I remember one time, uh, Frank said to me, you think this is jazz? <laughs> <laughs> right. I just, I just thought that was cool as hell, you know. Right, That's exactly, sure. exactly the phenomenon that it's delusive. Yeah. There's right. even a word for this. But, you know, it's, then yeah. you get, you get this, these people though that, that kind of like their stuff to lean experimental more and I think there's some degree of that is the appreciation for the sound itself and yeah. that's why you played with butter knives and marbles with your guitar like a microphone sure. as you right. say and and sure. just the uh, the effects that I mean you had some of those um, what was it uh, is it electrofaustus fly yeah. Yeah, black yeah, fly, yeah, black fly, oh yeah, and stuff like that. You know that, that that makes use of, and I've seen people retrofit those, and I see other versions of those that, that people have had, and I thought, yeah, exactly, and it's just really interesting how how this all fits together for us. I mean, yeah. I thought of a couple other things, but I don't want to go on too long. Right. You, well, you yeah, I'd love to have you back to talk about it. Recording. I, like I said, I don't know if you want it to be this one that we've just been talking about, but I mean, whatever you yeah, choose. I mean, which, yeah, whatever is fine. One of the things that I was going to mention real quick is that I, I distinctly remember at some point where I, I, I it, it, it sounds weird, but I, I, I could physically tell that I was listening to music using a different side of my brain. Uh, it is very, it's very strange because it was very distinct though, because. Um, and it's weird because I really only recently kind of uh, learned about the kind of the different sides. Like, um, I mean, essentially we interpret language um, in music with language, music with words with the left side of the brain. Um, you know, uh -huh. right-handedness right is, is uh, you know, yeah. more sort of doing language and math and kind of further concepts, whereas you know, left hand in this right brain is much more about marketing and just colors and artistic and 
and higher concepts and things like that. And, you know, one of the things that, that I was introduced to, of course, through ethnomusicology uh, was just kind of a whole Eastern approach to music, which is, I mean, essentially, I mean, they interpret everything as music. Um, everything kind of falls within the category of sound, which they which they categorize as music. So, um, you know, if you're listening to a piece of music and a train goes by, it's not that the train is interrupting the music, it's, it's, it's also kind of the Zen concept of just accepting things kind of in the present moment and the way that they are. You know, the train is, is part of the music. Um, it's not, you know, noise to it. You know, and interpreting, you know, I mean, if it's raining outside and it's like the dripping water, you know, that becomes that becomes part of the music. And um, first recording I ever got from Frank Frank was Step Across the Border, which of course is a soundtrack to a film about him and just music and things like that. And it's so it's so interesting because you can you can listen to the C D and basically feel like you've watched the movie and you can watch the movie and feel like you've heard the the soundtrack of course because he mix I mean he uses the sounds of the environment and the music and writes compositions around those. So I mean the you know the candy making machine is just another instrument that's part of the music or um, you know the person working in the Japanese rock garden you know or you know just different things. You know he's out having a conversation with seagulls playing his violin and you can't tell which one is his violin and which one's a seagull. You know, or, or, you know, writing compositions around cars, you know, Washington's Ditch, you know, New York or whatever. Um, you know, and it's, it's, again, it's totally breaking down that, that line between what sounds and what's, you know, what's noise and what's music. And I, I, I physically felt that shift of going from listening to music with, with solely the left side of my brain to, you know, the right side. Wow.
uh, as well as just, you know, extended compositions, very uh, thermal, electronic, and type of things. Um, pretty much no rules go for that. So, um, for Saints, and that's available through uh, Bandcamp as well as, uh, like, um, um, now I'm forgetting the name of it, um, Spotify and, and Amazon and things like that. So, um, that's that in times trio, uh, jazz trio, we actually just had one recording out um, called Fractured Time, which is available through CD Baby. Uh, my solo stuff, which would be uh, kind of solo experimental guitar stuff as well as computer compositions, um, is available through Bandcamp, just under my name. Um, and then the, the lesser, I would say probably non-experimental things would be um, Tim Ghost, which of course is just kind of my my throwback to just kind of the old comfy jeans or comfy pair of shoes or whatever. It's kind of my way of viewing the music. Yeah, just uh, kind of my old feed roots. Um, so it's acoustic-based music. Um, I'm really not trying to make any strides musically <laughs> that way as far as experimentation goes. Right. And then at Demons on Wheels, which is kind of my start off is is essentially kind of garagey rock. It's probably evolved a little bit more into kind of indie and hard rock, but I mean it's still uh, a rock project. Um, there's there's some experimentation in there with noise. I kind of loosened up my own personal rules for it a little bit to introduce at least some noise, kind of more sonic UV type um, noise yeah. stuff in there. But uh, yeah, Demons on Wheels, and those are more. both. More aggressive. Yeah. Now, um, I, and I have probably 
oh, I don't know, probably 80, at least 80 old songs of Tim Gale songs that I've been trying to release periodically, and I'm going to continue to try to, to work on some of those and release some of those. Um, and then um, almost done with the next uh, Tim Ghost album. And then I have um, actually a kind of a throwback 80s new wave um, album that I'm, that I'm working on. I've actually been working on that for a little while. Um, and I've actually started um, working on some some other stuff that's kind of trying to do myself in other directions that I don't normally go in. So there's even some kind of heavier, heavier, um, I'd say even heavier than Demons on Wheels stuff um, that, I'm, that I'm starting to work on, as well as some pretty heavy um, electronic type stuff as well. Um, Awesome. That I started working on. So, yeah, just kind of trying to, to travel down a bunch of different avenues and areas and, and at least visit there and see what I think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, keep it up. And yeah. I hope, thank you. I hope to hear some of it and we'll play it on the show, I'm sure. Yeah, I've been starting to collaborate a little bit, trying to branch out. I was trying to get some additional singers for the uh, for the 80s stuff. Um, 80s singing styles are so strange. <laughs> Um, huh. and uh yeah, some of the other other things just trying to maybe bring some other people into the projects too. So of course with the pandemic it's made that a little difficult, but yeah. So but yeah, I hey. certainly appreciate the uh, interest in the opportunity to, to chat about music. Oh yeah, no no problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for coming on and, and uh uh hang on, I'll talk to you after. Okay, but, sounds good. So, hey, I really appreciate you coming on, and and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Sounds great. Thank you.